Chapter 36 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christy Carpenter. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 36. Sir Boyville quickened his pace. Neville followed. He was still the same being who in his youth had been driven to the verge of insanity by the despotism of his father. His free and feeling heart revolted from arbitrary commands and selfishness. It was not only that his thoughts flew back, wounded and sore, to Elizabeth, and figured her agony, but he detested the fierce and vulgar revenge of his father. It is true that he had seen Faulkner, and in the noble though tarnished grandeur of his countenance he had read the truth of the sad tale he related, and he could not treat him with the contempt Sir Boyville evinced, to whom he was an image of the mind, unseen, unfelt. And then Faulkner had loved his mother, nay, more, she as a sister had loved him, and faulty and cruel as had been his return for her kindness, he, through her, was endued with sacredness in his eyes. To oppose these softening feelings came a sort of rage that Elizabeth was his child, that through him a barrier was raised to separate him from the chosen friend of his heart, the one sweet angel who had first whispered peace to his soul. The struggle was violent. He did not see how he could refuse his evidence at the inquest already summoned. In every way his motives might be misunderstood, and his mother's fame might suffer. This idea became the victor. He would do all that he was called upon to do, to exculpate her. The rest he must leave to the mysterious guidance of Providence. He arrived at the poverty-stricken town of Ravenglass. The legal authorities were assembled, and while preliminaries were being arranged, he was addressed by Sir Boyville's solicitor, who asked him to relate what he knew, that his legal knowledge might assist in framing his evidence briefly and conclusively. Neville recounted his story simply, confining himself, as much as possible, to the bare outline of the facts. The man of law was evidently struck by the new turn he gave to the tale, for Sir Boyville had unhesitatingly accused Faulkner of murder. This Faulkner, he said, had concealed himself for the space of thirteen years, till his accomplice Osborne was discovered, until he heard of Gerard's perseverance in sifting the truth. Then, fearful the tale might be disclosed in America, he came forward with his own narrative, which glossed over the chief crime, and, yet, by revealing the burial place of his victim, at once demonstrated the truth of the present accusation. It is impossible that the facts could have occurred as he represents them, plausible as his account is. Could a woman, as timid as Alethea, have rushed on certain death, as he describes? Why should she have crossed the stream in its fury? A bare half-mile would have carried her to a cottage, where she had been safe from Faulkner's pursuit. What lady in a well-known country, where every face she met must prove a friend, but would not have betaken herself to the nearest village, instead of to an estuary renowned for danger? The very wetting her feet in a brook had terrified her. Never could she have encountered the roar of waves sufficient to overwhelm and destroy her. Such were the observations of Sir Boyville, and though Gerard, by his simple assertion that he believed Faulkner's tale, somewhat staggered the solicitor, yet he could not banish his notion that a trial was the inevitable and best mode of bringing the truth to light. 
The jury were now met, and Sir Boyville gave such a turn to his evidence as at once impressed them unfavorably toward the accused. In melancholy procession, they visited poor Alethea's grave. A crowd of country people were collected about it. They did not dare touch the cloak, but gazed on it with curiosity and grief. Many remembered Mrs. Neville, and their rude exclamations showed how deeply they felt her injuries. When I was ill, said an old woman, she gave me medicine with her own hand. When my son James lost at sea, said another, she came to comfort me and brought young Master Gerard and cried, bless her, when she saw me take on, rich and grand as she was, she cried for poor James, and that she should be there now. My dear mistress, cried another, never did she speak a harsh word to me, but for her I could not have married. If she had lived, I had never known sorrow. Execrations against the murderer followed these laments. The arrival of the jury caused a universal murmur. The crowd was driven back. The cloak lifted from the grave. The men looked in. The skull, bound by her long hair, hair whose color and luxuriance many remembered, attracted peculiar observation. The women, as they saw it, wept aloud. Fragments of her dress were examined, which yet retained a sort of identity, as silk or muslin, though stained and colorless. As farther proof, among the bones were found a few ornaments. Among them, on the skeleton hand, was her wedding ring, with two others, both of which were sworn to by Sir Boyville as belonging to his wife. No doubt could exist concerning the identity of the remains. It was sacrilege to gaze on them a moment longer than was necessary, while each beholder, as they contemplated so much beauty and excellence, reduced to a small heap of bones, abhorrent to the eye, imbibed a heartfelt lesson on the nothingness of life. Stout-hearted men wept, and each bosom glowed with hatred against her destroyer. After a few moments, the cloak was again extended. The crowd pressed nearer. The jury retired and returned to Ravenglass. Neville's evidence was only necessary to prove the name and residence of the assassin. There was no hesitation about the verdict. That of willful murder against Faulkner was unhesitatingly pronounced. A warrant issued for his apprehension, and proper officers dispatched to execute it. The moment that the verdict was delivered, Sir Boyville and his son rode back to Dremore. Mr. Ashley and the solicitor accompanied them, and all the ordinary mechanism of life, which intrudes so often for our good, so to jostle together discordant characters and wear off poignant impressions, now forced Neville, who is desirous to give himself up to meditation, to abide for several hours in the society of these gentlemen. There was a dinner to be eaten. Mr. Ashley partook of it, and Gerard felt that his absence would be indecorous. After dinner, he was put to a trial, more severe to his sensitive, imaginative mind than any sharp strokes of commonplace adversity. He was minutely questioned as to the extent of his acquaintance with Faulkner, how he came to form it, how often he had seen him, and what had drawn confession from him they named the criminal. These inquiries had been easily answered but that the name of Elizabeth must be introduced. And, as he expected, at the mention of a daughter, a world of inquiry followed, and coarse remarks fell from his father's lips, which harrowed up his soul. While he felt that he had no exculpation to offer, nor any explanation that might take from her the name and association of the child of a murderer. 
As soon as he could, he burst away. He rushed into the open air and hurried to the spot where he could best combat with and purify the rebellious emotions of his heart. None but the men placed his watch were near his mother's grave. Seeing the young squire, they retreated, and he who had come on foot at such quick pace that he scarcely felt the ground he trod threw himself on the sands, grateful to find himself alone with nature. The moon was hurrying on among the clouds, now bright in the clear ether, now darkened by heavy masses, and the mirroring ocean was sometimes alive with sparkling silver, now veiled and dim, so that you could hear, but not see, the breaking of the surge. An eloquent author has said, in contempt of such a being, try to conceive a man without the ideas of God and eternity, of the good, the true, the beautiful, and the infinite. Neville was certainly not such. There is poetry in his very essence. An enthusiasm for the ideal of the excellent gave his character a peculiar charm to anyone equally exalted and refined. His mother's decaying form lay beneath the sands on which she was stretched. Death was there in its most hideous form. Beauty and even form had deserted that framework, which once was the dear being, whose caresses, so warm and fond, it yet often thrilled him to remember. He had demanded from heaven the revelation of his mother's fate. Here he found it. Here in the narrow grave lay the evidence of her virtues and her death. Did he thank heaven? Even while he did, he felt with bitterness that the granting of his prayer was inextricably linked with the ruin of a being, as good and fair as she whose honor he had so earnestly desired to vindicate. He thought of all the sordid, vulgar, but heart-thrilling misery which by his means was brought on Elizabeth, and he sought his heart for excuses for the success for which he had pined. They came ready. No desire of vulgar vengeance had been his. His motives had been exalted, his conduct straightforward. The divine stamp on woman is her maternal character. It was to prove that his idolized mother had not deserted the first and most sacred duty in the world that had urged him, and he could not foresee that the innocent would suffer through his inquiries. The crime must fall on its first promoter. On Faulkner's head must be heaped the consequences of his act. All else were guiltless. These reflections, however, only served to cheat his wound of its pain for a time. Again, other thoughts recurred, the realities, the squalid realities of this scene, in which she, miserable, was about to take a part. The thief-takers and the jives, the prison and the public ignominious trial, Faulkner was to be subjected to all these indignities, and he well knew that his daughter would not leave his side. And I, her son, the offspring of these sainted bones, placed here by him, how can I draw near his child? God have mercy on her, for man will have none. Still he cannot be satisfied. Surely, he thought, something can be done, and something I will do. Already men are gone, who are to tear him from his home, and to deliver him up to all those vile contrivances devised for the coercion of the lowest of mankind. She will accompany him, while I must remain here. Tomorrow these remains will be conveyed to our house. On the following day they are to be interred in the family vault, and I must be present. I am tied, forced to inaction, the privilege of free action taken from me. Hope was awakened, however, as he pursued these thoughts, 
and recollected the generous, kindly disposition of Lady Cecil and her attachment to her young friend. He determined to write to her. He felt assured that she would do all in her power to alleviate Elizabeth's sufferings. What she could do, he did not well understand, but it was a relief to him to take some step for the benefit of the devoted daughter. Bitterly as he thought of these things, did he regret that he had ever seen Elizabeth? So complicated was the web of event that he knew not how to wish any event to have occurred differently, except that he had not trusted to the hollow pretenses of his father. He saw at once how the generous and petty-minded can never coalesce. He ought to have acted for himself, by himself. And miserable as in any case the end must have been, he felt that his own open, honorable revenge would have been less cruel in its effects than the malicious pursuit of his vindictive father. End of chapter 36